1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays
2: at 1 Eastern on
3: Bloomberg.com,
2: the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg
3: Business app.
2: Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Tuesday edition of Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington where there are a couple of us left. 61 senators showed up for votes last night, 17 of them Republicans. We're done here. Appears to be the signal. John Thune talking with Bloomberg. Not going to happen, he says, about a deal potentially on the border that kept everybody here over time. (laughs) The quote he gave to CNN, no way on a Ukraine border deal, even a cloture vote apparently happening this week. Uh, The Democrat at the negotiating table, Chris Murphy, uh, still somewhat optimistic, bringing us up to date on this
1: seemingly endless saga. I know it's maddening to hear us say we continue to make progress without a product. That is in part because of how difficult this set of law is. And even when you have an agreement in principle, writing it and coming to a- agreement on the writing is,
2: is hard. There is that matter of writing the legislation, but we can't even get to a deal. And Mitch McConnell says, you know, It's going to take a while to read this thing when you guys get done, so we're looking at next year. Here's the minority
1: leader. The Republicans will not make up for others showing up late to the table by waiving our responsibility to carefully negotiate and review any agreement before voting on it.
2: With the headline on the terminal, Senate Republicans shut door on quick Ukraine aid border deal. And that's where we begin our conversation with Congressman Ami Berra, the Democrat from California 6th, back with us here on Bloomberg Sound On. And Congressman, it's good to see you. I'm glad you're with us. I wonder from what you're hearing as a member of the House through the grapevine, this is all over, right? There's no 11th hour Christmas miracle kind of a deal that's going to emerge this week on the border.
4: You know, Joe, um, thanks for having me on. I think it's unlikely that there's anything before the end of the year, but, you know, you, we just heard um Senator um, Murphy from Connecticut, you know talk about it. I do think there is progress, and I think we're we should have a deal that first week of January that um when we get back
2: so. well, that my gosh, very optimistic, knowing that Congressman, it's not just been this battle. This has been a, a debate for, for the better part of uh, 30 years on Capitol Hill, and it's been walked up to the line more than once, and it never became law. What is different this time? Is it the urgency behind Ukraine that brings Democrats to the table in a way that did not before?
4: Yeah, I think it's the urgency to continue to support um, our, our friends in Ukraine in their battle against um, Vladimir Putin. I think certainly the, the Israeli support is important as well. In addition, I think it's important for us to get humanitarian aid to, to, to Gaza and the Middle East and, and certainly to Ukraine. But the crisis on the border is very real. And I think you know, many Democrats understand that we have to do something to strengthen our border security, you know, get through the, the backlog in asylum cases, et cetera. And I think the one big difference is you know, the president and his team is at the negotiating table right now. And I think that's going to be helpful.
2: Do you have a sense not being in the room, I realize, uh, John Thune's not in the room either, either and, but to the extent that you're hearing about this, what the sticking points are? Because you do have a Democrat in Chris Murphy at the table, Kirsten Cinema, now an independent, former Democrat, though, good at making deals, is at that table. And James Lankford appears to be a credible negotiator. With the White House now involved, where does this come down to? Is it defining asylum law or is it more granular?
4: You know, I think it's a, a little bit of everything. So, on the House side, I hear my Republican colleagues really saying you've got to take HR2, which is their House immigration bill. That would be a non starter for, for most Democrats, if not all Democrats. But there are elements in HR2 that you probably could take. Um, that'll mean you'll lose some of the Freedom Caucus folks, some of the, the far right. On our side, you know, we will have to make some changes to the asylum laws and, and so forth. Um, that'll you know lose some of our most progressive members, perhaps some of the members in the, the CHC, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, which requires um, moderate Democrats and Republicans to come together and put a deal together. And I think that's where the sticking point is. I think it is helpful that the, the president is kind of laying out how he sees the border. And I think he recognizes that it, it is a real issue and you're seeing big city mayors who are also grappling with a lot of these um, asylum seekers who are going to Chicago, New York, etc. We've even had some come here to Sacramento and you know, trying to figure out, okay, how do we manage this?
2: Well, this all of course means a longer wait for Israel and Ukraine, for that matter, Taiwan, the supplemental funding request that would be tied To a border deal, Congressman, you're hearing a lot more than most uh, as a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee, as I mentioned, the Intelligence Committees. Uh, How worried are you about Ukraine as we go into this new year, not knowing when funding will resume?
4: You know, I think it weakens our standing in the world that we didn't get the supplemental done. That said, the fact that we did get the defense authorization bill um, out of the House and Senate and the president should sign it this week, that does have funding both for Ukraine. You know, there, there's ways to continue to to support Israel. It also does have um, you know, funding for Taiwan and, and you know a, a pretty large amount in there to help make sure our our friends in Taiwan can continue to defend themselves. That said, we don't have a lot of time, and you know, I hope one of the first things that we do when we get back in January is take up the supplemental bill with Ukraine funding, with Israel funding, with your humanitarian aid, with. Indo-Pacific funding and with border security and, and get that done. So I, I'm confident the folks in the Senate are going to continue working through the, the holiday. You know, We're ready to to weigh in on the House side as we need to. And then hopefully as soon as we get back, we have that um, ready to vote.
2: Spending time with Congressman Ami Barra here on Bloomberg Sound On. I have to ask you about the hot war underway between Israel and Hamas at the same time. Realizing this is less of a, a money issue or a funding issue, and it's become a, a, a very, uh, very divisive political issue for Democrats, for for this administration supporting Israel and what some see as a disproportionate response to what happened on October 7th. We talked about this uh, a, a couple of months ago, Congressman, and I wonder where you are now. We have a new poll out today from The New York Times and Siena, and it's showing problems consistent with other polls for Joe Biden particularly among young people 18 to 29 year olds disapprove the way that the president is handling this conflict where are you right now
4: yeah so obviously the the acts that took place on october 7th were heinous and what hamas did um yeah you know, israel will prosecute a war against hamas but all the video imagery of you know innocent civilian lives the humanitarian crisis that's unfolding in gaza is also taking a, a And I think a lot of young people are seeing these images on TikTok, on Instagram, et cetera. And um, it is, you know, making them question what we're doing in Israel. That said, it is really complicated. We'll stand by our allies in Israel, but as friends sometimes have to do, and I think you're seeing the president, uh, Jake Sullivan and others, you know, Mm -hmm. really messaging to the Israels that it's time to start wrapping up this phase of the war. They'll continue to prosecute a, a campaign against the mosque. But Let's do it in a more precise way using special operators, et cetera. And let's shift now to saving innocent, um, kids, innocent, older folks. You know, there's a humanitarian crisis unfolding, lack of food, lack of clean water. You know, um, my staff was talking to doctors without borders. They don't have antibiotics and so many people are dying just of secondary infections. And that's not war. That's entirely preventable. Let's Hmm. save those lives.
2: There's uh a, An important headline. uh, I was just reading on the terminal here. The president of Israel, Isaac Herzog, telling ambassadors from around the world that they are prepared to agree to a second pause, a second truce, if it means uh, the return of more hostages held by Hamas. Is that a realistic overture at this point? I know the CIA uh, director is back abroad. He's in Warsaw right now working on a potential truce. Will that happen potentially over the holiday here?
4: I certainly hope so. I mean, that would be important to get the hostages back. Uh, and then as part of that, Therese, to get needed food, antibiotics, medications, um, fuel to, to run the remaining you know hospitals that, you know, I don't think there's that, that much left. Um, clean water. I mean, these are, you know, folks are going to die of starvation, die of diarrhea, et cetera. And those are lives that we can save. And I say that as a doctor, again, Israel will prosecute this war, but if we can get a humanitarian pause, if we can get some of the hostages back, and if we can save some of these lives, that would be great. Yeah.
2: You are a doctor, a former practicing physician, the former chief medical officer for Sacramento County Congressman. Uh, when the gates finally open again and humanitarian aid can move into Gaza, what is it they will need most?
4: You know, the, the, they will need clean water immediately. 96% of the water in, in, in Gaza, as I'm told, is is undrinkable. And just the the amount of folks that are getting cholera, getting um, you know treatable infectious diseases, um, and then starvation i mean you 're hearing really bad reports um, that they 're running out of food in in Gaza, and again, the aid trucks are there. We just have to op- get more crossings open, get that aid in there, make sure it 's getting to the civilians and and getting to the the right folks and again, I think everyone 's ready to step up. We introduced a, a resolution last week. Um, to really encourage the president to continue to push for that humanitarian aid. Mm-hmm.
2: In the meantime, uh, we've got a very serious situation in the Red Sea. Uh, as we hear the defense secretary announcing this new maritime task force to protect commercial vessels, uh, many of which have stopped traveling through the Red Sea due to the, these persistent attacks from uh, Houthi militants in Yemen. Uh to what extent will this uh, this task force make a difference, Congressman? Is this something your committee is focused on?
4: It, it is. And again, I think the president very early in this conflict was decisive, moving assets into the region, aircraft carriers and, and other uh, support um, assets to make sure this conflict didn't broad- broaden. We've talked to our, our friends, the the Saudi foreign ministers in Washington, D.C., Last week, as well as um, the foreign ministers from Qatar and Jordan and Turkey, um, meeting with, with um, Secretary Blinken, but also met with us on the House. And you know, along with trying to figure out how to end the conflict in Gaza, and the day after, we did discuss how to continue to keep these maritime straits that that are super important in terms of commerce open. How to make sure you know we we kept the Houthi rebels out of this. Um, and, you know, it is something that we're actively thinking about.
2: Is the U.S. going to strike targets in Yemen, go to the source to stop this from happening?
4: You know, again, that might be one way to, to stop it. Right now, I think, you know, we're we're protecting the ships and doing what we have to do. But if this escalates, I can certainly see a scenario where we, we have to go to the source and, and um, address that at the, the root cause.
2: It's pretty important. I wonder... As you talk to Democrats in the House, to Democrats uh, even more so in California, uh, and as I mentioned, younger Democrats, as we've seen, 18 to 30, 18 to 34, depending on the poll, who say we need to stop funding this action by Israel. Is there a line that Bibi Netanyahu could potentially cross that would cause that to happen?
4: You know, um, I'm not a Netanyahu supporter, and you know, I think he's made some real grave errors that have led us to where we are today. You know, when I talk to some of my Palestinian-American constituents mm-hmm. who have lost relatives, friends, and, and, you know, it's heart-wrenching as well, just as when I talk to some of my Israeli constituents and Jewish-American constituents, mm-hmm. I how I approach it is that the Israelis need to do everything that they can to minimize innocent civilian lives. And I think it's a reasonable question to um, ask how they're prosecuting this war um, and see if they can do it in a more precise way. War war is horrible and we're seeing the horrors of war. The other thing that I say to young people is the one thing we can do is make sure innocent civilians don't die of um, starvation, of lack of clean water, lack of access to medications. That's not war. That's um, compassion and humanitarian aid. And that's something that I really do push the Israelis to allow more crossings to open and to get that aid in there yeah. to prevent people from dying from eminently preventable causes.
2: Congressman, I feel like I should call you doctor. It's great to see you again. Ami Bara. thank you for joining. And I hope this holiday season is great for you. Happy New Year. I hope we'll see a lot more of you in 2024, from California's sixth to Sound On, Ami Barra will assemble our panel next, Jeannie Shanzano and Lester Munson. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg
0: 1130.
2: How many issues can you imagine Senators J.D. Vance, Josh Hawley, and John Fetterman coming down on the same side? It actually is happening right now, which is kind of remarkable, and I want the panel's take on this. As J.D. Vance and Josh Hawley send a letter to the Biden administration urging they move to block this deal uh, that sees a Japanese company buying U.S. steel. This is a huge headline from the past 24 hours. If you're a stock trader, you probably know about it. Big day for U.S. steel. And, of course, we know where they are based. John Fetterman of course uh, fashions himself a steel man speaking in a video uh, from his hometown in pennsylvania here he is
1: i'm standing on the roof of my home right here in braddock pennsylvania right across the street from the edgar thompson plant and i just have to say it's absolutely outrageous that they have sold themselves to a foreign nation and a company can't do that steel is always about security as well too and i am committed to doing anything i can do on using my platform or my position in order to block this. He's right. Steel
2: is about security, and I want to assemble the panel for their take on this. Jeannie Shanzano is with us today, Bloomberg Politics contributor, Democratic analyst, joined by Republican strategist Lester Munson from BGR Group. Uh, Lester, are they onto something here? I don't know if the Biden administration is going to move to try to squash this deal. This is uh, Japan's Nippon Steel again buying U.S. Steel, one of the most iconic companies Uh, In American history, do you think Holly, Vance, and Fetterman will stop it?
1: Uh, I don't know that they will. They will certainly cause a stir. I think the thing they have uh, stumbled on is called xenophobia. Uh, Mm -hmm. So they seem to have that in common. Uh, It's unclear to me why uh, a business deal with an allied country would be somehow bad for American security. Uh, We're as closely allied to Japan as we are to anyone. Uh, The economics in the steel industry are difficult under the best of circumstances. Uh, It is a good thing that Americans can invest in assets abroad. It is a good thing generally uh, that folks in other countries can invest here in the United States. So I am I'm generally speaking rather opposed to this criticism Hmm. uh, subject to some of the details of the deal coming out. But for sure, the politics uh, are are benefiting populists on both sides.
2: This is uh, interesting. The United Steelworkers urging U.S. regulators to scrutinize the $14 billion deal. genie. Uh, are these politicians driven by xenophobia or national security?
3: Um, you know, I, I hope it's not xenophobia. I think they are probably driven by the fact that they all have close connections in their states with these unions and these workers. I mean, let's not forget, we're talking about, you know, the Pittsburgh Steelers. You know, this is an 120 year old plus company in the United States. It's an iconic. Company. This is 3,700 workers. And while we hear that they will, uh, Nippon will agree to abide by all the labor agreements, those are enormous concerns. So I think, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of nostalgia there. There's a lot of politics there. On the flip side, I do agree with Lester. You know, we are not in World War II, Japan is one of our closest allies. Um, We would hope this isn't xenophobia. And we also can't forget that Nippon has a handprint, a footprint in North America already. They have uh, plants, they have space in places like West Virginia, Indiana, Mexico. So they are, you know, closer, I think, Southern United States, they are closer, I think than people maybe realize, but this is certainly getting a lot of play. It is bipartisan because of the politics surrounding Pennsylvania, it's gonna be very curious to see mm-hmm. if and what Biden has to say and the administration has to say about this deal as we march into the 2024 election.
2: Absolutely, particularly with his affinity uh, for the United Steelworkers Union. Where do you think this goes politically then uh, in, in a campaign year, Lester? You know, Donald Trump's going to weigh in on this, speaking of xenophobia.
1: Well, Trump's going to weigh in. Uh, I expect Sherrod Brown, uh, the incumbent senator in Ohio, uh, oh. who I believe is up for re election next year, to be um, uh, outspoken on this at some point as well. So it'll be interesting to track theirs. I do think it's notable that. You know, we're getting this populist reaction from both parties. There's no, there seems to be yeah. no home for uh, kind of the sensible uh, support for business management in the United States anymore. And that, that kind of makes me think maybe there's an opportunity for a third party here. Gosh, next year might be more interesting than <laughs> I think. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, the, the administration
2: has had a pretty heavy hand when it comes to antitrust. This FTC has been busy, Jeannie. Do you think that the White House would have a problem with this in principle?
3: You know, I think they are going to want the deal and the parameters of the deal closely scrutinized. I think they are going to be supremely concerned about the impact on labor, as you mentioned, given how close Joe Biden is and how much he depends on it. Um, and, And let's not forget, you know, just back to the politics of this as it pertains to labor, these are states where the margins of winning and losing are sometimes in the thousands over the last several election cycles as you look at Pennsylvania and Michigan, so they want to be very careful not to step on any support they might otherwise have. And I think that's what we're going to see them vying for. And, you know, the reality is, is that this deal also, there are a lot of questions being asked about now why Nippon is paying, you know, what is it, $50.55 per share, which most people say is an mm-hmm. overpayment. And so I think it would be really incumbent on Fetterman and Vance and, and, you know, any of the other senators and skeptics to say, what are the national security concerns? here you're hearing some things about chips and others those need Mm -hmm. to be brought out they need to be brought out now because again the deal they were hoping to finalize it in just a matter of a few months by mid uh, 2024
2: just wait for those hearings uh in our last moment here Lester who's going to win the union vote in this presidential election will it be a democrat or republican
1: well, you know, I think Joe Biden needs it to win. Uh, mm-hmm. Donald Trump stole that vote from, from Democrats in 2016, and, and Joe Biden got enough of them back in 2020 to win uh, to to defeat Trump. I mean, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but that's the. They're both going after that that demographic. There's no doubt, and I and I would look for both sides to be making you know they're they're going to look to drive out their supporters in that constituency so they're going to make more and more extreme statements and and be more and more demagogic on this issue in order to drive mm-hmm. their voters to the polls so i don't i don't think that's helpful when it comes to good mm-hmm. government You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern
3: on Bloomberg.com,
1: the iHeartRadio
2: app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Things are moving today. I don't know how we even got here already because Kaylee Lines is sitting with me, so I know it's <laughs> hour two. Good to see you. Likewise. Um, this is an important day, I guess, in in coming to terms with reality. Mm. Senators, as I said earlier, have one foot out the door. All of 61 actually just showed up to vote last night. Right. So this idea of having some grand breakthrough in a deal emerging that we'll actually vote on, <laughs> seeming pretty thin right now.
5: Seems like it's not going to happen. I think we can say that with a great deal <laughs> of certainty at this point, So Joe. I've not
2: gone out on a limb here.
5: No, I think yeah. jet fumes are in the air. So I read. A lot of people just didn't get on the jet back to Washington That's in right. the first place. But there is some business they can take care of in the next couple days before they wrap up Mm -hmm. the year 2023 in terms of congressional business, including the Senate today, possibly actually going to finally once and for all put an end to this blockade that Tommy Tommy Tuberville, the senator from Alabama, had going for so long.
2: Which would have, the guy would be almost a year in on this now, right, if they get it done. We're down to 11 four-star generals. Correct. If you listen to or watch uh, Bloomberg Sound On, you know a lot about this story because we've talked about it a lot. And I'm, you know, the remarks from General Panaro are still echoing here in the studio, uh, among many others. We've talked to Republican and Democratic lawmakers who have been outraged uh, about this and railing about it on the air. Yep. And it appears that this is finally the day, as painful as it has been, it comes to an end.
5: Assuming they have enough if they get it done. people there to actually get these Actually, you need enough people through. to show up. Right. Yeah,
2: that's the, I guess, the idea. So let us not predict let's bring the general in. Arnold Pinaro is back with us, uh, retired two-star Marine Corps general and former staff director of the Senate Armed Services Committee. So he has a bit of an idea of how this stuff works. General, it's great to see you. Uh, is this going to be the day we look back on Tommy's last stand? Well, Joe and Kaylee, uh, I sure hope
6: so, but I don't know because uh, Senator Schumer uh, after they finally got Senator Tuberville to back down and we got 400 of our flag and general officers approved, like you said, almost a year. Very, very negative impacts on, on our military leadership uh, during that period. We have 11 four stars and some of them are, are the top warfighting commanders that we need to get in place because we tell the mothers and fathers that we're going to that their sons and daughters. They give us in uniform will be the best trained, the best equipped and the best led. And he's holding up. Uh, the best lead, and and he wasn't even in town. So if he's holding them, it's by remote control. And so Schumer either has to get Clocher, if Tuberville won't agree to unanimous consent, or he's got to get a unanimous consent agreement where they can just yeah. be voted on by voice vote. And you know, we, yeah. we with Senator Tuberville, you never know. He kind of the last thing we heard from him publicly, he was still holding his ground. And let's just hope. Uh, as Kaylee said, they started smelling the jet fumes right after Thanksgiving. The do nothing <laughs> Congress has done absolutely nothing in the weeks they should have done leading up. Uh, but let's hope we get these 11 through. Again, three of them are the top war fighting mm-hmm. commanders of our top military units.
5: Okay, so assuming, General, that they can get this done, if we're leaning here on the side of optimism, at this point, if everyone is to be confirmed we can call this Tuberville blockade over how much of the damage that was done is not able to be recovered from if you will or is this something we can really put in the rear view the military moves forward with not too much permanent damage done to it as an institution
6: well, we can't we can't put it in the rearview mirror and it's not over and he could put his hold on again because we have more nominations coming in uh, every week in the US Senate and so we don't have any agreement looking forward and number two, uh, the military will never put this in the rearview mirror because they, they were, they've they been politicized. Uh, he, he used them as political pawns over a policy that he disagreed with, that he had nothing to do with. And it's rumbled through. I'm, I'm over in the Pentagon a lot. I'm talking to, you know, a lot of folks that are still on duty. And uh, it, they're not putting this in the rearview mirror at all. It's had a really negative impact on morale, on readiness, not just on the people in uniform, but on their families and their children.
2: Hmm. Well, it sounds like we may not be done with this, uh, depending on what the senator from Alabama decides to do early next year. General, I wonder if you share the frustration on top of all of this, uh, that many Ukrainians feel that military aid that they say is badly needed within weeks as they run out of money uh, is locked up in a debate over our border with Mexico. Should this emergency funding be tied in with that type of domestic policy?
6: Well, Joe, let let me just say that this has been one of the most disappointing things I've seen in the almost 50 years. I've been working the hill and and working these issues because we're going into the new year and the, the national security as it relates to Ukraine, as it relates to support to Israel, as it relates to additional support to Taiwan, as it relates to increasing security on our borders, and as it relates to having a full year defense appropriation for our own Department of Defense. We're not going to be getting any sugar plums in our stockings this year. We're going to get big lumps of coal because the do-nothing Congress has done absolutely nothing. They're going to go into the new year. They have no agreement on the top lines. They have no deals worked out on this supplemental that where Ukraine, for example, has already said they've run out of artillery shells. And so we, we are in a very, very bad situation. Where the Congress has been dithering and, and not getting their work done. And so uh, i think the political reality is uh, we've got a serious national security issue on the border it's going to be tied to funding for ukraine uh, and nobody's going to be able to get around that so they just need to uh, suck it up and get their work done
1: Mm -hmm.
5: Hmm. okay well general this really has been cast as a as competing national security interests if you will there's a messaging battle kind of happening on the one side, you have Republicans saying you have to address national security issues at home first, the U.S. border before you go and give more money to defend another country's border. Speaking here of Ukraine, do you is that argument valid or are the stakes here when it comes to what a potential Russian victory in Ukraine could mean for the global order? Just just too high for that kind of argument.
6: Look, look, the the seriousness and the adverse impacts the Wall Street Journal had an editorial today where one of their most distinguished columnists, uh, retired now, but he writes every once in a while, said one of the big winners in 2023 is, is, is Putin, because he basically, the economic sanctions haven't hurt him, uh, the West is tiring out, we, we couldn't get the final funding for Ukraine finished before the, the he, he sees, and, and again, if Putin was to, uh, to win in, in, in Ukraine, it would send a signal to China, to North Korea, to Iran, to be even more aggressive than they've already been. So while the border security is important, uh, I don't see it at the same level and the same drastic consequence that would occur, um, you know, if if Putin was to win in Ukraine. And right now, uh, again, the Wall Street Journal, a very conservative newspaper, is giving plaudits to Vladimir Putin.
2: Quite a dangerous world we're living in here, uh, General. Because we can keep going as I point you to what's happening in the Middle East, and specifically this new task force to manage what's happening in the Red Sea, where we're seeing commercial shipping come to a halt based on persistent attacks from these Houthi militants in Yemen. Is it time for the United States to strike at the source?
6: Absolutely. I mean, look, freedom of navigation is an essential element of worldwide commerce, particularly for the United States of America. Uh, that's why we don't want China to basically have domain over the South China Sea where $5 trillion of the world economy moves through there every year. The the Red Sea, the, the, the Straits of Hormuz, Panama Canal, the Suez Canal, these have got to be, these waterways have got to be kept open. And frankly, it's ridiculous that basically we are allowing these uh, $100,000 drones to go after our ships and go after these large tankers. And we're spending $2 million per missile to shoot them down. Frankly, uh, where I come from in the military, you go to the source and, and, you know, the Houthis are are isolated down in Yemen, right down at the bottom of the Red Sea. Uh, We should be taking out their their sites where they're firing these missiles from. That's a lot safer way and a lot less risk to our ships and to the tankers than basically trying to shoot them down in the air where they're on the way there. As a young second lieutenant in Vietnam, my my main mission as a Marine platoon commander was to interdict the Ho Chi Minh Trail where the Chinese brought supplies into the south. And I had this silly notion. I said, well, why don't we try to stop them up north when they're still in China coming through North Vietnam so we don't have to fight with our bayonets when they get here right into our face? Well, what we ought to be doing with the Houthi rebels is taking out their sites where they're firing on our ships before our ships. One $100,000 missile, if it was to hit one of these billion-dollar destroyers, just like happened in the first Gulf War when one of our big naval combatants hit a $25 mine, it did a billion dollars worth of damage. It's just way too risky to do the way we're doing it now. Certainly, we should have freedom of navigation and keep these waterways open, but we should take the fight to the Houthi rebels where they're firing the missiles.
5: Well, General, you just described as the Houthi rebels as being isolated. And yet, aren't they a proxy for Iran, which is potentially a much greater threat? And I just wonder if the U.S. were to take that kind of, of direct action, if that actually escalates the threat of this turning into a wider regional conflict.
6: Well, Kaylee, I meant isolated geographically. They're located in, in other words, meaning they would not be hard for our tact dogs to find them. They're isolated geographically in a small part of Yemen at the bottom of the Red Sea. We do worry about escalation, but look, uh, Iran has been operating with impunity. Um, We are not deterring them. We have got to take much stronger action, not just against the Houthi rebels, but against the uh, Iranian proxies that are attacking our forces in Iraq and Syria. And we haven't sent a strong enough message uh, that there would be consequences to pay. And again, I don't think uh, Hezbollah has not jumped in in the northern tier other than you know, random attacks and, and Iran does not want to get into a shooting war with the United States. I think the fear of escalation hmm. um, is is a not is not a realistic any more than I thought the fear of Putin using nuclear weapons and escalating. I think we were way too timid when we first went into Ukraine and held the Ukrainians back when they hmm. could have been attacking the Russian supply lines in Russia.
2: Well, let's hear you out on what's happening in Israel because the Biden administration is being told to, to start pulling back and, and delivering that message to the IDF to end this phase of the war with Hamas. Is that what needs to be done now, General? And how do you respond to the critics? And there are a lot of them. We're hearing from them every day here on the program. The administration is hearing from them as well. Critics who say you can defeat Hamas without killing as many civilians in Gaza.
6: Well, certainly, uh, as someone that's operated in a number of wars in, in built-up areas, in and built up areas, combat in built up areas and urban areas, is extremely difficult. Uh, Clausewitz pointed that out. It always favors the defender, which is, of course, in this case, Hamas. Uh, you can operate in these areas and minimize civilian casualties. You're not going to eliminate them 100 uh, percent. And I think more could be done on that front. But on the other hand, um, uh, you know, both the Houthi rebels and the Hamas—they they basically say death to America, death to Israel—and Hamas wants yeah. to wipe the state of Israel and all the Jews that live there off the face of the earth. And so, Israel has got to basically deal with this threat. I mean, frankly, if if, if, if citizens in the northern part of the United States or in the southern part were attacked from from terrorists, either from Canada or Mexico, um, the United the citizens of this country would demand our military to be responding. And so. I think they can be more careful, but in the final analysis, combat in built-up areas is a very, very You've got to root them out, and basically the only way that Israel is going to basically protect uh, their sovereignty and protect their own citizens is they're going to have to take Hamas out where they are, and they they, they, they hide in tunnels. They hide under hospitals. They hide in protected targets, and, and uh, they've given the Israeli military uh, no alternative but to get in there and 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 go, you know, in, in close in encounter, and that's just the bottom line. And, but guess what? It's been like that in every war that we've been in. Uh, you know, you look at World War II, and you look at the um, the, the U.S. of course was taking on Hitler in Japan, and, and look at the amount of civilian casualties, unfortunately, that had to be incurred to be able to win that war. And I'm not, I'm right, not I don't want to Pinaro. come across as a warmonger, but let's face it. I guarantee you. If the citizens of the United States of America were it, had the same risk the Israeli citizens have, they would demand that our government and our military take those threats out.
5: All right, General, we'll leave it on that note. As always, we appreciate your insight. Thank you very much for joining. Thanks, happy general. holidays and happy new year to you, even if it is uh, a year that Joe clearly could potentially still bring great geopolitical risk. And interesting to yes. hear from the general there that the military strategic reality may be running into pretty direct conflict with the political reality of the Mm -hmm. climate here in the U.S. for the administration. On the one hand, Israel needs to do what it needs to do to defend itself. On the other, it's getting very hard to justify the cost in civilian lives.
2: It's a really complicated conversation. It's not going to get easier in the new year, but we will continue having it here, Kaylee, Thanks again to the General. With Kaylee Lines. I'm Joe Matthew. Glad you're with us. Thanks for listening to the Sound On podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com.
0: The countdown has begun. This May, 1,000 global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor q